Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. President Biden arrived in Israel hours after a devastating explosion in the courtyard of a Baptist hospital in Gaza, a deadly tragedy that the U.S. is now asserting the U.S. believes Israel is not responsible for. Rather, President Biden said earlier today, it was damage that the Palestinians may have caused. The images emerging are devastating, and the descriptions of the deadly aftermath are rather graphic. Here's what a volunteer who went to help clear the remains said. I came at 8 a.m. as a volunteer, thinking I will help with minor things. But I was shocked to see unimaginable things like children's corpses, elderly corpses, bodies of dead women scattered, human hands, legs, intestines, and many human bodies. The Hamas-controlled Palestinian health ministry immediately blamed the Israeli military yesterday And that accusation flew around the world. But after investigating the matter, Israel says that they have evidence that the cause of the blast was actually a failed rocket launch from Islamic Jihad, an Islamic militant group. Israeli officials say that the damage does not suggest it was from an Israeli missile. And earlier today, a spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces told me that the failed rocket was caught live on Al Jazeera. They were broadcasting it live, and I actually I have an image here of the of the launch of the broadcast, and this is a screen caption of what they did, and you can see this is at just 6.59, you see the Al Jazeera emblem, and that's the rocket that actually fell into the hospital. The Israelis also released audio of individuals whom they claim are with Hamas discussing the incident, and in the audio they Acknowledge reports that it was Islamic Jihad that launched the rocket and that that failed rocket fell on or near the hospital. President Biden today in Tel Aviv said that the intelligence he has seen matches with Israeli intelligence. I was outraged and saddened by the enormous loss of life yesterday in the hospital in Gaza. Based on the information we've seen to date, it appears the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. A sentiment echoed, not surprisingly, by his own U.S. National Security Council, which, which uh, issued this statement released this morning, quote, while we continue to collect information, our current assessment based on analysis of overhead imagery, intercepts, and open source information is that Israel is not responsible for the explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday, unquote. But 
Palestinian officials maintain that it was Israel. And either way, their claims, their claims are the ones being believed by Arab leaders and the Arab street. Jordanian leaders and the Palestinians canceled planned meetings with President Biden because of the hospital tragedy and the claims that leaders in Gaza were making about it. And those claims, regardless of the facts, have ignited protests on the streets across the Arab world. Frustrations, no doubt, also because of Israel's bombardment of Gaza and, frankly, Israel's very existence and President Biden's reaffirmation of U.S. support for the Jewish state. The president stressing the need today for Hamas to release all of the hundreds of hostages that they took. Well, let me assure you, for me, as the American president, there's no higher priority than the release and safe return of all these hostages. To those who are grieving, a child, a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a friend, I know you feel like there's that black hole in the middle of your chest. You feel like you're being sucked into it. The survivor's remorse, the anger, the questions of faith in your soul, starting at staring at that empty chair, sitting shiva, the first Sabbath without them, they're the everyday things, the small things that you miss the most. Another priority pushed by President Biden during his visit to Israel uh, is for the U.S. to push Israel to secure safe passage along the southern Gaza border with Egypt for supplies, for food, for water, for medicine, for fuel to get into Gaza. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza is getting worse and worse. And also for the civilians, including some U.S. citizens, Palestinian Americans and others, desperately wanting to get out of Gaza. But at this moment, President Biden's on the plane back to Washington, D.C., and that border, the Rafah Gate, the Rafah Crossing, that remains closed. And the crisis for innocent civilians in Gaza right now is only growing more dire. Let's get right to CNN's Clarissa Ward, who's north of Gaza. She's in Ashkelon, Israel. And Clarissa, the U.N. just confirmed there's, quote, no update on if and when any aid will start crossing from Egypt into Gaza or any innocent Palestinian-Americans or others can get out of Gaza. What are you hearing from Israeli officials? That's right. The U.N. basically saying no set timeline here, Jake. Uh, we also heard today from the Egyptian leader, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. He said that this was because of shelling uh, and strikes, uh, Israeli strikes near the border crossing. We, uh, CNN uh, journalists, did observe several uh, explosions near the crossing during the day. The Israelis have said, echoing what President Biden announced, that they are now willing to allow aid through the Rafah crossing, provided that it does not get diverted to Hamas. They said they will not open up any aid to come through this side of the border until all of the hostages are released. And we know there has been a flurry of diplomacy, uh, desperate attempts to try to get these dozens of trucks that have been waiting now, Jake, on the Egyptian side of the border since very early on Tuesday morning to get some of that aid inside to the southern part of Gaza, where, according to the U.N., some 
some 600,000 more people have arrived just in the past few days. But this is a very tricky, uh, complex mechanism to put together because there are so many different parties involved, because the tensions are so high, because the strikes who continue. And as you mentioned, the situation inside Gaza growing more dire by the minute, uh, food running out, no water, no electricity, no real safe space for people to seek refuge or respite, and no end in sight to this crisis, Jake. And Clarissa, is the new information, intelligence being provided by Israel on this hospital blast, is it moving the needle at all in the Middle East? Obviously, some of it they're releasing publicly, some of it is, is private, but is it having any impact at all on how people are perceiving what happened? It's not, Jake, and, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. This has obviously become incredibly emotionally charged. We have seen this outpouring uh, across the Arab world, across the Muslim world. Uh, people feel horrified when they see what's happening in Gaza. Uh, and so I don't think this has changed any minds. And also, the news is moving so quickly. The continued strikes today, the images of President Biden hugging uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the news. Uh, uh, that the U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution to call for a humanitarian pause. This all just kind of continues to pour fuel on the fire. And then you compound that with the vast barrage of misinformation and disinformation that is really all pervasive across social media platforms. And that just factors and cycles in uh, to this sense of outrage, this sense of indignation, and no sense, I would say, at this stage that that is going to change, Jake. Clarissa Ward, uh, just north of Gaza in Ashkelon, Israel, thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN anchor Caitlin Collins in Tel Aviv. Caitlin, how much did President Biden put on the line, do you think, uh, with his strong defense uh, of Israel? Not so much domestically uh, in the U.S., but, but internationally. Well, I mean, he certainly came to a region that was already kind of seething, Jake. They were already on edge and angry over what was reported initially about that explosion that happened at that hospital in Gaza that Clarissa was just talking about there. Of course, you initially saw the IDF come out and say it was not them, that they did believe it was from a group emanating within Gaza where that strike came from. But that is something that a lot of leaders in the area did not take the, the IDF at their word. And you did see that was one of the biggest statements that President Biden made in the few hours that he was on the ground here in Tel Aviv saying that he did believe uh, Israel's denials and he did believe they were not responsible. And he later said that wasn't just because the Israel defense forces were telling him that. He said he was citing his own Pentagon data. And then we saw later on the National Security Council explained that it had to do with satellite data, infrared light that they were looking at, as well as open source information that helps them make that assessment. Now, they said it's just their current assessment. It's not this 100 percent foolproof assessment, but it was pretty clear cut where the president stood on that today. But I think the larger point of all of this this coming, Jake, is also seeing what the president was saying, where he is expressing this full stop in solidarity with Israel. You saw him saying it repeatedly today, talking about the United States is going to back Israel up. But there was also a moment in his final remarks here in Tel Aviv, Jake, where he did offer a word of caution. He talked about 9-11 and what the U.S. was feeling after 9-11 happened and saying that that is amplified even here. This is what he said. You can't look at what has happened here to your mothers, your fathers, your grandparents, 
sons, daughters, children, even babies, and not scream out for justice. Justice must be done. But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. Saying there that the United States made mistakes following 9-11, I should note, Jake, that I talked to the U.S. ambassador to Israel, or the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. about that comment, and they talked about how there is this sense of palpable anger, and obviously people want to see a response. Of course, that response is expected to come in the form of a ground invasion, but the scale of what that looks like, of course, remains to be seen. Yeah, I was just talking about that same exact issue with General Petraeus and the idea of whether waiting and strategizing is smarter than just reacting and punching back immediately. And it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one to discuss. Um, President Biden was also going to meet with uh, Arab leaders in Amman uh, from Egypt, Jordan, and uh, the West Bank. And that was, that was canceled. That was supposed to be a crucial part of this trip. What comes after Israel uh, gets rid of Hamas, assuming that does happen, uh, is also a very important part of this equation. And that can't really be done without... Uh, the cooperation, uh, if not the leadership uh, of Abbas and the leaders uh, of Egypt and Jordan. Yeah, or the humanitarian aid. I mean, that was one of the biggest tangible achievements that President Biden walked away with. There weren't a lot of them coming out of this trip, but pointing to what he said was Israel allowing that humanitarian aid to go from Egypt into Gaza. We have not heard from Egypt yet on that. They haven't issued any kind of full confirmation saying, yes, this is the agreement. There are still questions about the timing of that. Uh, That was something that the White House had hoped they were going to figure out during this trip when President Biden was meeting face to face with the president of of Egypt, with the leader of Jordan, with these leaders in real life. And instead, he's settling for a phone call because they canceled on him. And Jake, that is just remarkable that for the president to come over here to the Middle East, to have this meeting in Israel and to have these other world leaders politely decline to meet with him is really remarkable in and of itself. And it's certainly a setback for the White House. And so it factors into what that humanitarian aid going into Gaza is going to look like if they are able to set up a safe zone corridor. But also, you're right, Jake, what the future of this looks like, because the White House said Biden had tough questions for Netanyahu about that plan. They didn't reveal what those questions were publicly, but certainly having that conversation with these other world leaders who have been uh, more critical of Israel or certainly not outright condemning Hamas in the same way that you've seen some other nations do. That's all a big part of this and all obviously something that President Biden is a challenge he's still taking with him back to the United States tonight. Especially if those that visit, that summit was canceled because of what happened at the hospital. If that if that incident was because of an Islamic Jihad rocket and not the Israelis to have that canceled. I mean, that doesn't even make any sense. Um, Caitlin Collins in Tel Aviv. Thanks so much. A, A new warning today from Israel about its plans to deal with Hamas. I'm going to talk to a senior Israeli government official next, and we want to show you this scene right now from uh, inside the Cannon House office building near the U.S. Capitol. Protesters with several Jewish American organizations are demonstrating in support of a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Dozens of demonstrators have been arrested there in the past hour, but as you can see, dozens continue to stage a sit-in. We're back in a moment. A top Israeli military official warned Israeli soldiers today that the war with Hamas, quote, will not be short. 
especially if any other country gets involved. Meanwhile, after the U.S. assessed that Israel is, quote, not responsible for the Gaza hospital blast, a senior United Nations official called for an independent investigation, while other countries, such as South Africa, are simply not buying Israel's claim that Israel's not responsible and have accused Israel of war crimes. Joining us now, Israeli government spokesperson Elon Levy. Um, thank you so much for joining. So earlier today, I spoke with the IDF's Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, and he told me last night that Israeli officials came to the conclusion the IDF was not responsible, that the final determination and evidence was presented several hours after the blast. And, and one of the questions I had is, doesn't the IDF know where it is aiming its munitions and where they're landing? Why did it take that long to definitively determine what had happened? Thank you for having me on the show, Jake. Indeed, as time moves on, it's clear that what happened last night is not a murder mystery, but really an open shut case. And the evidence really is incontrovertible that it was a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket that misfired from inside the Gaza Strip and landed in the parking lot of that hospital. It wasn't an Israeli airstrike. The hospital was not destroyed as the initial claims came out from Hamas yesterday and as many in the international media parroted immediately. But look, when such an allegation is made, the IDF does exactly what you would expect of the professional, of a professional army of a democratic state, which is that the spokesperson's office needs to check uh, the allegations, needs to bring all the evidence instead of just issuing a blanket denial. And the only reason that the international media has been trapped in this, he said, she said over the last 24 hours, is that Hamas... That's what the Gaza Health Ministry is. It's Hamas, which is as bad as ISIS, if not worse, made an outrageous allegation immediately. And Israel said, look, we need a few hours in order to issue a preliminary investigation. And that evidence now is overwhelming that what took place yesterday was a horrific war crime perpetrated by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They were trying to fire a rocket at our people to kill us, and they ended up murdering their own. Prime Minister's office uh, confirmed uh, with CNN that Israel will allow humanitarian aid into Gaza from Egypt, but it will not allow supplies into Gaza from Israel's territory until Hamas releases all hostages. And that effectively punishes all Palestinians, even those wounded and sick and desperate, because of Hamas, even though your government acknowledges that Palestinians in many cases are victims of Hamas. Why not let supplies in uh, to help the people that are suffering because of Hamas. At the moment, Israel is in a state of war with Hamas inside the Gaza Strip. It's a war that we were dragged into as a result of the October 7th massacre and the gruesome brutalities that are really only just beginning to come to light. Now, it's important to understand what happened at Israel's crossings, the Erez crossing, for example, through which so many Palestinian workers went to work in Israel every day, was completely destroyed by the Hamas death squads when they invaded on the morning of the 7th of October. The village of Kerem Shalom as well was another of the villages near the crossing where they went door to door, massacring, torturing and murdering people. And Israel has made very clear we are at war with Hamas. We therefore will not allow our crossings to be used in order to conduct trade and business as usual, while they're holding 200 of our people, men, women, children, some babies, elderly people in captivity. We have no objection to Egypt allowing its border to be used in order to deliver humanitarian aid to the people of Gaza. We want humanitarian aid to reach the people of Gaza in the safe zone in the south for the people who have heeded Israel's warning to temporarily evacuate from the north of Gaza to areas where it will be safer away from intense fighting. And we have a simple demand. 
that we make sure that the aid actually reach the people of Gaza and that it not be stolen and requisitioned by Hamas. Just as we saw two days ago when the United Nations admitted that Hamas had stolen fuel and medicine that was intended for humanitarian purposes inside the Gaza Strip. They then quickly deleted that tweet, but Hamas stole 24,000 litres of fuel donated with taxpayer dollars, taxpayer euros, taxpayer pounds. And we insist that if aid is going to go into the Gaza Strip, it should reach the people it is supposed to reach and not reach the Hamas war and death machine as it continues to perpetrate atrocities and aim rockets at our cities. So as of this hour right now, the Rafah crossing on Egypt's border is still not open. Um, What's your understanding as to why uh, aid is not moving into Gaza? We've heard conflicting information on Sunday. Jake Sullivan told me, the national security advisor for the U.S., told me that there had been an agreement with Israel and Egypt uh, to let uh, the Palestinian Americans leave Gaza, um, but the Hamas was stopping it. There have all been all sorts of pointing of fingers. There was a time that Egypt was blaming Israel. I, what's going on in terms of aid getting in from Egypt and Palestinian Americans getting out of Gaza? Exactly. That's important to understand just as a basic point of geography that the border between Egypt and Gaza is controlled by the Arab Republic of Egypt and Hamas terror authorities inside the Gaza Strip. It is not a border that Israel controls. And indeed, just a few days ago, the arrangements were in place for foreign nationals to be able to leave the Gaza Strip. And it was Hamas that stopped them, effectively turning those foreign nationals into hostages, in addition to the 200 Israeli hostages that they've been holding there since the October 7th massacre. I repeat, this is a war that Israel is fighting against Hamas, not against Gaza, not against the people of Gaza. We don't want to see more civilian casualties. We don't want to see any suffering. And that's why Israel is taking every necessary step to try to minimize civilian casualties, warning people to get out of the way, indicating we have no objection to humanitarian aid moving through Egypt in order to reach the people in need. And we hope that in the days to come, and we know that the fighting is going to be difficult and is going to be hard, but we're only just beginning in our efforts to destroy the Hamas machine. We hope that we're going to be able to target the Hamas terror infrastructure inside the Gaza Strip with minimal harm to civilians who, you know, despite the scenes of jubilation that we saw on the streets of Gaza when Hamas returned with Israeli hostages returning from the massacre, and despite those images that really nauseated everyone in in Israel, we don't want civilians to be hurt. And Israel has no objection to the humanitarian aid reaching them through Egypt. All right. Ilan Levy, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, really, uh, really appreciate thank the you. time. So, uh, several Israeli soldiers uh, were killed, obviously, on the day of the Hamas attack. Up next, the mother of one of those soldiers reflects on her son's life. Stay with us. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. President Biden on uh, Air Force One uh, talking to reporters about his trip to Israel. Uh, Let's listen in. Virtually every mass shooting, every circumstance where a large number of people have been victimized and lost, I've spoken to. I learned a long time ago what you've all learned in your life. When someone's going through something, it was beyond their comprehension that they ever thought they'd have to go through. If they see someone who they think understands or maybe been through something not the same but similar, it gives them some sense of hope. And I always get criticized sometimes on my staff because when I go to these events, I stay for three or four hours and answer all their questions. But it matters. It matters a lot. And look, I'm talking, some of you have gone through a hell of a lot more than I've gone through, and a lot more than other people have gone through, and you understand. So it's just, it's just, uh, people are looking for just something to grab, something that gives them some sense, sense of hope. And that's, if I can do a little bit of that, then it's, you know, it's worth doing done for me. So, you see, do you think it was necessary for you to come here to get this so done with the in-person diplomacy aspect really important here? What do you think? I'll, I'll, I'll you answer that. You joked about the House. Do you have any of your uh, Jim Jordan and his predicament? Do I have any what? Do you have a view of Jim Jordan's current predicament and unable to secure the speakership? I think for No. <laughs> Zero. None. Mr. President, I'm at the hospital, sir. People all over the region um, are upset about the hospital and don't necessarily believe uh, you or the Israelis that they didn't have anything to do with it. Do you have a message to the people in the streets right now? Well, I can understand why in this circumstance they wouldn't believe. I can understand that. And, but uh, I would not, you notice I don't say things like that unless I have faith in the source from which I've gotten our Defense Department says it's highly unlikely that it was really a different footprint and it intercepted some. Anyway, and uh, so that's why I notice I didn't say it first and I wanted to make sure that I knew. And look, and I'm not suggesting that Hamas deliberately did it either. It's that old thing, got a little how she straight. It's not the first time Hamas has launched something that didn't function. So I, I don't know all the detail, but I do know the people at the Defense Department who I respect, the intelligence community that I respect, being highly improbable in Israel. Mr. President, is, are there Israelis um, operating within the rules of war that you talked about last week being so important? We're good talking to you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. 
We have uh, President Biden uh, returning from his trip to Israel. Uh, he had hoped to meet with more leaders than just Pres uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, let's bring in MJ Lee uh, at the White House. And uh, MJ, obviously, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, he, uh, the president had a good meeting with him, reaffirmed uh, the alliance, uh, the United States uh, and Israel, but uh, obviously had to have been disappointing. He, he really wanted to meet with uh, the Palestinian Authority President uh, Mahmoud Abbas, as well as the leaders of Jordan and Egypt. And that was canceled in the wake of uh, the tragedy at the hospital in Gaza, a tragedy that the U.S. and Israel assert was not done by Israel, but that didn't seem to, to matter uh, to the Arab leaders. Yeah, and Jake, it is really unusual for the president to come back to the back of the plane uh, to have this kind of moment, taking questions from reporters. Uh, my read off the bat is that this is a president who uh, wanted to sort of emphasize the reason that he decided to go ahead with this trip uh, anyway, even after that Jordan portion of the trip was canceled. Uh, it was a little bit hard to hear, obviously, uh, over the engine noise, but uh, he did say initially that it, he felt that it was important uh, that when you have the opportunity to alleviate uh, the pain of people, that you should do it, that you should seize that opportunity. Obviously, he's talking about the great suffering that has taken place in the region uh, since last weekend. Uh, a couple of other things worth noting. Uh, he was asked a couple of times about the issue of the humanitarian aid, and he said uh, repeatedly that he got no pushback. He said virtually none uh, from all of the partners on the issue of getting humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza. Obviously, uh, after his trip has concluded, even though the president did say that Israel had agreed to let this aid through to Gaza, there are still outstanding questions as to how exactly that is going to happen and on what uh, timeline. Uh, he also uh, made a comment about how hopefully we will get some Americans out as well. Uh, I assume that he was talking about uh, some of these unaccounted Americans in Gaza. Uh, we still believe that there are a handful of Americans that have been taken hostage by Hamas, but the information about uh, that situation has been very scant as well. We don't know anything still about the condition of those American hostages, uh, where they are, exactly what the number is. So uh, these are all of the questions that he is still confronting as he uh, leaves uh, from this trip, as he has concluded this trip uh, to Israel. Uh, even though, you know, U.S. officials, Jake, had been uh, saying all along it was so important for him to go to Israel anyway to uh, show this sort of resounding solidarity uh, by the U.S. for the government of Israel, for Benjamin Netanyahu, for the people of Israel. Uh, there are just going to be uh, some questions as to what tangible sort of um, positives he was able to get from this uh, this trip, this remarkable trip to a war zone area. And I think uh, you make a good point about how so much of that ended up being scrambled in the end because of this uh, hospital blast in Gaza and the fact that he really wasn't able to have those face-to-face -face meetings with a number of the Arab leaders that he very much wished to have seen, he could have seen in person and talked to in the room. So, uh, yeah, again, I think this was a president that uh, wanted to take the opportunity to directly talk to the reporters uh, on Air Force One to try to explain uh, with his own words why he believed this trip was worth making after all. All right, MJ Lee, thanks so much. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
Many Israeli soldiers uh, were killed as they responded to Hamas's terrorist attack on October 7th. Uh, Yanai Kaminka was one of them, a dual Israeli-American citizen. He was killed on the front lines in southern Israel, near Gaza, as he and other soldiers kept Hamas from attacking a nearby kibbutz. And joining us now is Yanai's mother, Elana Kaminka. Elana, uh, I'm so sorry to be talking to you under these circumstances about the loss of your son. You were supposed to visit him at the base where he was stationed on the day of the attack. Um, do you think about what might have happened if you had actually been there that day? Is that something you, you consider? I can't even start. To, we couldn't have even imagined. I don't think anyone in Israel could have, in their worst nightmares, imagined what happened on October 7th. My son was in a search and rescue unit, and they were dedicated to helping civilians in like disaster situations like earthquakes and I, and protecting civilians. And I never, ever could imagine what happened on, on October 7th in my very worst nightmares. Tell us about him, because you, you've said that your son blossomed uh, in the role of, of helping other people. Yeah, and I, he was 20 years old, but he had an extremely strong personal ethos. And I, I think that's so rare for a 20 year old to have. He, did, he held his cards close. We didn't know everything about it until now when we're starting to hear from his soldiers who are coming to visit us. But he believed in seeing the humanity in every single person. And that's he did that when, as, a, as a counselor for scouts when he was in high school. He did it in a year of civilian service before me. And he did it in the military, which is a really, really hard framework to, 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 in which to see the humanity of other people. But he worked at that. And that was, that was his personal ideology. And he would sit with his soldiers. He told me several times that he doesn't want to earn their respect by his rank and his seniority or his authority, but by showing them that he cares about them. And he would spend his, his free time walking around to see his soldiers at different guard posts and just engaging them and talking to them about their families and their interests and their goals and their pain and trying to understand their psyche and get into their mind. Several people said to us they felt like he had x-ray eyes that could just look into your into your soul and see who you were. And that's mm. that's what he that's what motivated him, that kind of human connection. And I think you know, that that was something that was kind of a connection through everything he did throughout his life. Sounds like a really special guy. Um, you've also said that the idea of more lives being lost tears you apart. What, what do you make of where the war is now and, and how the government of Israel has responded so far? I don't have any expertise. I'm a mother. I don't know anything about I can't give. I can't even imagine being in the position of the decision makers in the government. I can say that October seventh was a horrific day. There's nobody who's come to 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 console us or came to a nice funeral or come to visit us in the last week and a half who haven't been to numerous other funerals um, of friends, family, children, old people, whole families that were lost. And it's it's like a a tear through the Israeli psyche. I've been active my whole life in coexistence and peace, and and Yanai was that way as well. We we believe in those things, but I don't see how you know massacres of of babies in their beds advance that. And I hope that whoever makes the decisions, and again, I'm not 
I'm not, I don't have any idea. I'm not a military professional and I don't know how to make those decisions, but I hope that it's with a thought process of how we can all heal from this terrible tragedy and how we can build our lives back, both Israelis and and Palestinians who aren't Hamas members. Because I think that what Hamas did ended up hurting everyone, both Palestinians and Israelis. It wasn't to anyone's benefit on either side. No, obviously not. And, and there's so many people that were killed that day that were actually active members of the peace movement, you know, people that did a lot to try to bring about a two-state solution and, and people who protested Netanyahu and people who protested the oppression of, of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. Did you, did you listen to anything, President sure. Biden? Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, it's, I, I mean, we, we believe deeply in peace and coexistence, and that's what we worked at. And, and Yanai, again, he put his life on the line, keeping other people safe. It wasn't in aggression. It wasn't, it was, he knew civilians were at his back. He knew his, he saw his trainees. He was an officer. And even though he was only 20 years old, mm. he saw his trainees as his children and he was involved in their life. And and as a parent, you put your life on the line to protect your children. And, and he literally put his, his body and not only him, him and his other commanders, they didn't send their trainees to the front. They sent their trainees to the back, to the bomb shelters and, and they stood up to protect them. And it was because they knew that if the, 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 the Hamas uh, the Hamas terrorists were able to get inside. There were massacres in bases, just random massacres. And he didn't, he was not an aggressive person. And he was a person who believed in peace and coexistence. And it, it was truly putting his life on the line to protect others, which, which is so much of who he was. Yeah. He sounds like a wonderful, wonderful guy. Alana Kamenka, thank you so much. And, and, and may and I's uh, memory be a blessing. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, uh, the House will not hold another vote for speaker tonight after Congressman Jim Jordan failed to muster the adequate number of votes to clinch the job earlier today. Again. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to one congressman who is fervently against Jordan's speaker bid. I'm going to ask him about the pressure tactics that are not only being used against him, but against his wife. Stay with us. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Big story here in Washington, D.C. is the fight or struggle to select a new House Speaker. Today, Congressman Jim Jordan failed to clinch enough votes to win the job again. The House is set to vote again. That will be a third time tomorrow at noon. This comes as CNN is learning that Jordan's opponents have been deploying an interesting strategy on how to pressure the Ohio Republicans to drop out. They're drawing straws for who will vote against Jordan on each ballot so that the opposition to his candidacy appears to grow. The House has now been without a speaker for two weeks after Kevin McCarthy was ousted. With us now to discuss, Republican Congressman Don Bacon of Nebraska. He voted against Jim Jordan for speaker on both ballots. Uh, Congressman, uh, thanks so much for joining us. So we've seen 
We've seen a, what some would call a pressure campaign. Others are calling a bullying campaign against individuals who aren't on the Jordan train. Sadly, your wife got some ugly anonymous text messages warning her to convince you to back Jordan in the speaker vote. One of them read, quote, why is your husband causing chaos by not supporting Jim Jordan? I thought he was a team player. Your wife responds, who is this? And then, oh, now you have nothing to say. This person texts again. Your husband will not hold any political office ever again. What a disappointment and failure he is. People are pretty tough when they're anonymous. Um, But that's pretty ugly stuff to send it to your wife. I see from your Mm -hmm. vote today, it obviously did not have the desired effect. You know, I'm a 30-year Air Force guy, a retired general, commanded five times, deployed four times, led a flying squadron in combat. Uh, So if they think a pressure campaign or bullying campaign is going to work with me, it's not. In fact, it's angered me. It's angered my good friend, Steve Womack, who's a retired colonel, for example, and Mario Diaz-Balart. He's angered. The way to get to us is through an intellectual discussion and to work through the, the concerns we have. But to threaten us with primaries, threaten us with the shenanigans and sending you know, anonymous texts and phone calls. They were calling my wife anonymously as well. She's recorded some of them. And uh, so it's, it's wrong. There's... Some folks are so mad they don't mind what boundaries they cross, but it's not right. We can, we can like each other and still disagree, but some people don't have that ability. Has that ever happened to you before, your, your wife getting nasty phone calls and texts like that? No, one time they had people, there was people screaming at her in the neighborhood, and so she didn't like that. I guess I'm used to it more. Uh, so she does get a little bit, but obviously I get the 98 or 99% of that, but it's not right to take it on on family. And like I say, she was not angry last night. She just shared it with me, and I said, well, send it to me because uh, it's not right. And so I released it, and I, I appreciate you covering it. We've got to do better in our country. We can debate politics and still not treat each other terribly and, and, and wrongfully. We should be able to be respectful in our debate. So, in fact, Jordan is, is doing worse than he did yesterday. He had fewer votes than he did yesterday. A spokesman for Jordan said he's not dropping out. We're going to keep going. Um, do, you, do you see Jordan getting to 217 anytime soon, or do you think he's going to keep doing worse and worse? I believe he's done. He needs to say he needs to withdraw from this. Uh, he's going to lose more votes tomorrow. I know it. I already have. I know who's going to cross over and change. He doesn't have any pathway forward to 217. And there's two different reasons why. You have some group that's worked with him going back 10 years, and they've worked with him on appropriations, uh, more senior folks where he's caught, created a lot of chaos. I'm in the other camp where I don't like how he got here, right? We, he got here with a small number of Jordan backers who eight of them, for example, seven of them backed him, uh, but there was eight total, that was vacated the chair on Kevin McCarthy. Our rule state in the Republican conference, you got to have 112, right? And they came in with eight and violated our rules. They followed the rules, you had to have 112. And then we voted for Steve Scalise, uh, and and he got the majority vote. And then we had five Jordan backers say they would never vote for Steve, right, but would only vote for Jim Jordan right after Steve won. And also, at the same time, Jim Jordan told everybody that he would only get behind Steve if he had 217 votes. That is not our rules. In our rules, if you get the majority, you get behind that person, whoever has the majority, and you vote together on the floor. And so... That, that, was, that, that was the straw that broke my camel's back there when those five Jordan folks said they would never vote for Steve right after the election, but only for Jim. And Steve was there, and he didn't speak up. 
which makes, means that he is somewhat complicit. You can't play a game where I'm the only guy playing by the rules and the other guy is not. It's not American. We believe in fairness and that the law applies to everybody, and that wasn't the case with a small group of individuals here. But I have, I have to ask you, I mean, I hear what you're saying about all of this, but Jim Jordan was part of the effort to overturn the presidential election. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, did that bother you? Well, I disagree with it. Obviously, I voted to certify the election. Uh, but truth be told, about half of our conference had, on some of those states, didn't vote, vote to... Uh, Two-thirds of your conference. Had, right. I, I'm not that one. I'm not one of those guys who did. I thought it was our constitutional duty uh, to, to, to do that. But yes, it bothered me. Uh, but our rules would be if we debate, we put all of them together, and once you get a majority, you should get behind them. I didn't vote for Jim Jordan. I voted for Kevin McCarthy. I voted for Steve Scalise. But our rules are you support the winner of this. But yeah. in this case, our, we were never respected in that. Every, at every turn, a small group went against the majority and were able to kick out McCarthy and block Steve. And so th- at that point, you can't, you can't play in an unlevel playing field. That was what was going on. So who's going to be your speaker? Is Patrick McHenry going to get it by default, do you think? I think he's one of the most likely guys to do it. He's reluctant, which makes him one of the best. Uh, he has a respect from everybody in the conference. I think Kevin McCarthy still has a good chance to be our next speaker, uh, frankly. There's other people. Tom Cole, uh, a great guy from Oklahoma, widely respected. We have younger folks like uh, Congressman Green from Tennessee or Congressman Hearn from Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. We have folks that can win 218 votes. Well, what happened here is you had two people that the Jordan team, not Jordan himself necessarily, but they undermined them, which gave Jim Jordan a lot of baggage because we were all angry about how the other two were treated. And that's, yeah. I think we, could, we should clean the slate and, and start anew. All right, Congressman Don Bacon from Thank Nebraska. You. Good to see you, sir. Always, always a pleasure. Thank you. The lead uh, will continue right now. President Biden on Air Force One flying home from Israel. His trip to call for peace was complicated by that deadly blast at a Gaza hospital. Killed hundreds, reportedly. President Biden said in Israel that he's seen intelligence indicating that the cause of the hospital explosion was a misfired rocket from Islamic Jihad, an Islamic militant group in Gaza. I was outraged and saddened by the enormous loss of life yesterday in the hospital in Gaza. Based on the information we've seen to date, it appears the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. The Hamas-controlled Palestinian Health Ministry, however, immediately blamed the Israeli military for the explosion. But after investigating the matter, Israel said that they actually have evidence that the cause of the blast was a failed rocket launch from Islamic Jihad. Israeli officials also state that the damage does not suggest an Israeli missile. Earlier today, a spokesman for the Israeli Defense uh, Forces told me that the rockets, the failed rocket from the Islamic Jihad, was actually caught live on Al Jazeera. They were broadcasting it live, and I actually I have an image here of the of the launch of the broadcast, and this is a screen caption of what they did, and you can see this is at just 6:59. You see the Al Jazeera emblem, and that's the rocket that actually fell into the hospital. Israelis also released audio of individuals whom they claim are members of Hamas discussing the incident, acknowledging reports at the time that it was Islamic Jihad and that that failed rocket fell near the hospital. The U.S. National Security Council reaffirmed just a few minutes ago that initial intelligence does not suggest that Israel was behind the blast. They issued this updated statement 
this evening, saying, quote, the U.S. government assesses that Israel was not responsible for an explosion that killed hundreds of civilians yesterday at the Al-Hali Hospital in the Gaza Strip. Our assessment is based on available reporting, including an intelligence, including uh, missile activity and open source video and images of the incident. Intelligence indicates that some Palestinian militants in the Gaza Strip believed that the, like, that the explosion was likely caused by an errant rocket or missile launch carried out by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, PIJ. The militants were still investigating what had happened, unquote. But Palestinian officials in Gaza maintain it was Israel. And, and either way, regardless of what the facts are, the claims of the Palestinians in Gaza, those claims are being believed by Arab leaders. And those claims are being believed on streets throughout the Arab world. Jordanian and Palestinian leaders, therefore, canceled their planned meetings with President Biden. And because of those claims, false, it appears, uh, there are protests ignited on the streets in Beirut and throughout the capitals of other Arab countries. Frustrations, no doubt, also because of Israel's bombardment of Gaza, also because, frankly, of Israel's very existence, and also because of President Biden's reaffirmation of U.S. support for the Jewish state today. Another priority for the U.S. expressed today by President Biden in Israel is securing safe passage along the southern Gaza border with Egypt for food and water and medical supplies and fuels to get into Gaza because of the dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And for civilians, including hundreds of U.S. citizens, Palestinian Americans and others, desperately trying to get out of Gaza. Let's get right to Aaron Burnett, who is live for us in Tel Aviv. Aaron, what is the latest we're hearing from officials about that blast at that hospital in Gaza? Well, Jake, as you lay out so many of the points, right, they've put out, you know, their maps, right, satellite maps. They put a map out here of uh, rocket trajectories to show that they know exactly where a rocket comes from, to say it came from that cemetery near the hospital. Uh, They've put out all their aerial images to show that an Israeli missile would cause a crater and there isn't a crater present here. They put out a map of every single missile, a rocket, I'm sorry, they say, has been fired by a jihadist group in Gaza that has missed its target and landed short in the Gaza Strip in the past 10 days. So they've, they've done all of that. Uh, But to your point, uh, Arab leaders believing them. The Jordanian foreign minister today said to CNN, Jake, that the quote was, the Israeli army is saying it's not responsible. But to be honest, try and find anybody who's going to believe it in this part of the world. And that's the challenge. And a former U.S. intelligence official was telling me that, look, um, you could you could present this evidence to King Abdullah of Jordan and he could see it and and realize it uh, to be true if that's how he sees it. But he's not going to be able to go out and convince uh, people in Jordan that this is true and this is fine and Israel didn't do it. So that's the reality, as you point out. It's a circular situation uh, and there isn't there isn't going to be a, a situation where across this region people say, OK, this is what really happened. Israel wasn't responsible. It's not going to happen. Aaron, tell me about this interview you did. You spoke with somebody who survived Hamas's terrorist attacks. T- tell us about that. So, Jake, I mean, you, you have spoken to people, you know, who have gone through this incredible trauma. And uh, I spoke to a young man named Raz. He's 23. He has lymphoma. He's been uh, trying to beat it for 10 months. Uh, and because he has cancer, he went to the festival late, got up early in the morning, was going to drive and just spend a few hours there. He had spent time in the Israeli Defense Forces himself. Here's the rocket, starts to see the shooting just a few miles short of the festival, gets out of his car and runs into a shelter. And he's in this room with five other people. And they throw in grenade after grenade, eight grenades, Jake, 
is pictures of the, the horrible carnage inside. He survived by putting a dead body on top of himself. And when uh, they came back in, he sees the gun slowly coming in, as he describes it. Um, he, they, they shot that dead body again and again and again. He was underneath it and was shot in the stomach. Uh, but he had in all of this, when the terrorists first came in, the Hamas terrorists, Jake, into this room, he describes the weapon slowly advancing in, and he looks the terrorist in the eye, and here's what he said. They come to the shelter, and we look them, and they look me, and what I see is... You look them in the eye? In the eye. In and the what eye. did you see when you looked them in the eye? The commander of Hamas. I see ISS. What I see? No, no nothing, no... In the eyes? Mm-hmm. Crazy. I don't look every... This eyes, I don't look like this. It's crazy, it's on the drugs. It's it looked like they were on drugs. Yes, yes, of course. Jake, he also described the atrocities he saw when he ran for help, uh, true and horrible, horrific atrocities. But I'll say this, uh, this is the reality that this was so intense and personal, the crimes, the carnage, the stabbing, and that there were people who would look eye to eye with a person who was willing to execute them. That is, of course, worth remembering every day what started it. It was that. Back to you. All right, Aaron Burnett and Tel Aviv, thank you so much. Now I want to go to CNN's MJ Lee, who was at the White House for us. And MJ, um, as you know, President Biden just spoke with reporters on Air Force One uh, about many subjects, including about the humanitarian aid uh, that is just waiting in Egypt, trying to get into Gaza. Uh, What did the president have to say about that? Yeah, the president has just told reporters on Air Force One that he had reached an agreement with Egypt's president, uh, President Sisi, uh, that the agreement is to open the Rafah crossing to get this humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza. The agreement, he said, was to allow 20 trucks through for the time being. And then in terms of the timeline, how quickly this could happen, the president saying literally the roads need to get fixed, potholes need to get need to get fixed before trucks can get through this area. So he estimated that those 20 trucks could start rolling into Gaza uh, around Friday. Uh, He also said that this purpose was only to get the humanitarian aid through, that it would not be to allow uh, a lot of people out. So clearly this was a key sticking point in his discussions uh, with the president of Egypt. Uh, He called this a very blunt negotiation that he had with his counterpart in Egypt. He said that they spoke for over an hour while Air Force One uh, was on the ground for a refueling stop. Obviously, the president is on his way back to Washington. So, uh, Jake, we were just talking about how the president didn't get an opportunity to meet face to face with some of these Arab leaders. The White House had said when that Jordan piece of the trip was canceled that he did plan on speaking on the phone with some of the leaders. And uh, this we are seeing playing out in real time. Uh, He had this phone call, he said was uh, over an hour. And now this is sort of the result of that conversation. Uh, I should also quickly note, Jake, that uh, over the last uh, few minutes, the White House has announced that the president tomorrow is going to deliver a primetime address from the Oval Office to address both the situation in Israel and the war in Ukraine. Just another vivid reminder of how much uh, events overseas have, has, have overtaken uh, the president's priorities and schedule. All right, MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. The hospital blast in Gaza ignited angry protra- protests across uh, the Middle East. Uh, in Lebanon, pro-Palestinian demonstrators skirmished with police near the U.S. Embassy, which is just north of Beirut. 
Police fired tear gas and used water cannons against the demonstrators. CNN's Nada Bashir is in Amman, Jordan, where a large demonstration took place today near the Israeli embassy. It's, it's after midnight there now. Have, have things calmed down? Well, like Jake, we left the protest just a short while ago and there were still hundreds of people at the scene near the Israeli embassy carrying on with that protest. As we saw last night, those protests carried on to the early hours of this morning. And this was certainly a huge show of solidarity with the Palestinian people, but also, of course, a huge show of protest against Israeli airstrikes on the besieged Gaza Strip. We've been speaking to protesters throughout the day. Many of them told us that they felt it was their duty to come out and show their solidarity, to show their opposition as these airstrikes continue to intensify. Take a listen. The least thing we could all do is just to stand here and be the voice of the people. It's pretty emotional. I mean, the whole thing has been running for like nearly a lot of years, nearly a hundred years has been going on. And uh, I think it's about time that, you know, people know the truth and what's exactly going on. Now, of course, Jake, these protests aren't new. We've been seeing protests taking place here in Amman and across Jordan from the outset of this war on an almost daily basis. Protests across the Middle East, as you mentioned. And, of course, this is a cause which has deeply resonated uh, with the Arab world. Many have expressed outrage and concern over the mounting civilian death toll in Gaza. And, of course, a lot of the focus has been on the situation at the Al-Ahli Hospital inside Gaza. Hundreds killed, as you mentioned there, and as Aaron mentioned, Israel has categorically denied uh, responsibility. Hamas and Palestinian authorities have placed the blame, as well as the Jordanian government, on Israel. And when you speak to people on the ground here in Amman, and when you speak to people across the Middle East, they feel that this is yet another example of an escalation of violence by Israel on civilians inside the Gaza Strip. All right, Nada Bashir and Jordan, thanks so much. Let's go back to Israel now. CNN's Nick Robertson is in Sterot, the area just outside has become an Israeli military uh, staging ground ahead of an expected ground incursion into Gaza. Nick, a few hours ago, you saw rockets from Gaza and heard what sounded like Israeli artillery fire. Have things quieted down at all? Yeah, it has, Jake, uh, but that's perhaps the last half an hour. And some of that artillery, interestingly, was landing pretty close to the border, it seemed. that It was loud here, which means it wasn't far away. I think the thing that we're listening out for here tonight is is, is any indication of a ground incursion, uh, heavy movement of traffic, uh, heavy machine gun fire, uh, the heavy bombing or, or artillery strikes in the immediate uh, lead up to it. Well, right now, it's, it, it's quiet. And is the sense of impending action as strong as it was earlier this week? Does an Israeli incursion still seem likely? Do you sense that the U.S. constant uh, sending of major cabinet officials or the president is the only thing that's been holding back the incursion? Uh, Or is there something else going on? Yeah, look, I think one of the big moves uh, from countries in the region, Arab nations, has been to try to call for a humanitarian pause, which would really, in effect, stop a military incursion as that pause was in place. And everyone that is opposed to the war would want that pause to be extended. It hasn't happened. There was a vote at the UN Security Council. Uh, UN, uh, United States ambassador there uh, vetoed it. So I think the perception here is still on the ground and the support President Biden has given that the situation is still primed. Israel still ready 
for a ground incursion, uh, we're told to expect a long war. But I think the anticipation is that uh, the next phase of it uh, will be some sort of ground incursion. Uh, but again, no decision on it yet that we're aware of. Nick Robertson in Israel for us. Thank you so much. CNN has obtained chilling new documents detailing the extent to which Hamas planned to go on their attacks on, on the kibbutzim. And hundreds of families are still waiting to hear about their loved ones being held hostage. Are they satisfied at all with the response of the Israeli government? We're going to talk with one of those families next. Hundreds of families, suffering families, are still waiting to hear something, frankly anything, about the whereabouts of their loved ones kidnapped by Hamas. And that includes Ofer Engel's family. They tell us that Ofer was kidnapped after visiting his girlfriend. He's 17 years old. Look at him. He's just a kid. On October 7th in Kibbutz Be'eri, that's just a a few miles from the Gaza Strip. And joining us now to talk about Ofer is his aunt, Yael Engel-Lichi. Yael, it's uh, it's a horrible question to even ask, but how are you and, and Ofer's family holding up? Uh, we try, we try to be together all the time. We don't leave my brother's house at all times. We like prayer together. Think about a fear, think about what he's going through. If he's cold at night, if someone can hug him. We really, really don't know what to think. We just hope that he will come to us quickly. That's what I can say. It's, it's really unbelievable what, we, what we're going through with, with other hundreds of families that didn't do anything, anything. Just, you know, Ophir just went to be with his girlfriend in a kibbutz, in a very beautiful kibbutz with a great family. And six o'clock in the morning, they started to hear gunshots and bombs. And the terrorists went inside their house, just grabbed them from the safe room and put them on the car and took them like like things. I don't know what to say. Yeah. And we I don't know if you can see a fierce picture, but look at look at these green eyes and we really just hope to bring him back. Yeah, he's just a boy. He's just a boy. He's just a boy. He's a basketball player. He loves life. Yeah. He laughs all the time. He's so sensitive. And we are really so worried. When I heard, can I, can I say something about Biden's remarks today? Because when I heard what he has to say about the kidnapped people, it gave us really hope. It, it gave us a feeling that the leader of the free world standing next to us and hug us, hugs us and we just hope that he really does everything to 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 make to, to bring fear home. I don't know if you know, but uh, we are a Dutch family. Uh, Ophir is a Dutch uh, citizen, yeah. and we all, you know, we can, we can choose where to live. But as President Biden told that Golda Meir told him, we have only one country, and this is our country, and we will stay here, and we. Hope that we will stay here in peace. We really hope so. If you could talk to those who who took off here, what what would you say to them? 
It's a very, very hard question because the obvious thing is he didn't do anything, bring him home. I don't think we can talk to them. I don't think, I just hope Ophir can hear me and that Ophir can, will know that we are doing everything, everything we can, day and night, to bring him home. We love him so much. We hope they treat him as a human being. We hope they let him be with other people. We hope they don't do anything bad to him. To him and to all these 200 and something people, children, old people that they took without their oxygen, without their medicine. They took children without the parents. It's, it's really, you know, I don't have words in English or in Hebrew or, or in any other human language to describe what we're going through. And I don't think I have anything to say to them, but bring him home. Bring him home. Let us hug him again. Let us be safe. He reminds, he reminds me of my son. He, look, he looks like my son. Yael, thanks for, uh, thanks for talking to us. We'll be right back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Tonight's new and chilling information about the extent Hamas was prepared for the October 7th terrorist attacks from Gaza into nearby Israeli targets. This comes in multiple cases from documents retrieved from the bodies of Hamas terrorists slain by the Israelis. Our Matthew Chance joins us now from northern Israel. And just a warning, some of the images we're about to see are disturbing. Matthew, the Israeli government shared these documents with CNN? Yeah, well, for much of the past week, Jake, we've been uh, gathering this information from multiple sources, including Israeli government officials, but also first responders in this country and um, Israelis who witnessed the attacks firsthand. And what we've built up is a disturbing picture of just how carefully planned the Hamas raids were and how much information they gathered on the Israeli communities that they targeted. Again, uh, viewers may find some of the, uh, the, 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 the pictures and the sounds in this report disturbing. Oh, CNN has gathered chilling new insights and details on the Hamas assault inside Israel, including disturbing video taken by the attackers themselves as they rampaged through Israeli homes, killing on sight. And then being killed. (laughs) Searches of their dead bodies revealing a trove of highly specific Hamas battle plans, including these detailed maps now shared with CNN by the Israeli government, showing communities near Gaza, like Kafar Aza, targeted by the attackers. These were the terrifying scenes inside, as Hamas gunmen recorded themselves moving freely through the gardens of Israeli homes. Code red, code red, the Israeli loudspeaker blares in Hebrew, punctuating the sporadic gunfire. After the attack, Israeli first responders saw bullet holes and bloodstains in room after room in what looks like a coldly methodical killing spree. But while hundreds of Israelis were killed, some Israeli communities managed to repel the Hamas gunmen and save lives. At Kibbutz Mefalsim, also near Gaza, 
residents pushed back a Hamas attack and found documents on the bodies of the militants they killed with disturbing, highly accurate intelligence on their homes. Including precise numbers of armed guards there. Regional Defence Force, at least 20 residents, one document reads, and 10 soldiers. They knew basically the size of our uh, uh, security team. They knew about other three or four entrances to the kibbutz. It sounds like they knew everything. They knew everything. Uh, where the generators are, uh, they, they knew where the armory is, uh, they knew about uh, rural uh, roads around the kibbutz. Security footage shows how Hamas gunmen killed an Israeli outside the kibbutz gates before being repelled. Even with detailed intelligence on their targets, not every Hamas objective was achieved. Nearby kibbutz Saad wasn't even attacked, although we now have documentary evidence that Hamas intended to inflict the maximum possible human casualties there and to hold hostages. A highly detailed street map found on another Hamas gunman and obtained by CNN shows individual buildings in Saad identified and assessed for their military value. The communal kitchen, for example, is described as the main place suitable for holding hostages. Inside the guard room, the soldiers must be neutralised, the Hamas instructions say. While the kibbutz dental clinic is designated a place for first aid, for both enemies and friends. Israeli residents of Saad say they also found that level of detail astounding. Shockingly, the details are very accurate. The map is a map of our kibbutz. It's very accurate. It's horribly accurate. If they'd have come to your settlement, they would have known exactly where to go, exactly where to cause the most damage. Yes, and we now see that their, their goal was to take hostages, including children. Israeli officials say they found other documents too that advise attackers to kill anyone posing a threat or causing a distraction, to keep captives away from arms or means of suicide, and to use them as cannon fodder. It is a dark turn. Even for a group seen here parading before the attacks. That's come to symbolize the uncompromising face of Palestinian resistance and violence against Israel. Israeli officials say a document referencing ISIS and Al-Qaeda, which CNN has not been able to authenticate, was found on one Hamas gunman killed during this attack on Kibbutz Biri. The document given to CNN by a senior Israeli government official praises jihad against Jews and crusaders. Israeli officials say that's evidence Hamas is increasingly influenced by global jihadi ideology, an assessment many experts have dismissed. But in the wake of the unprecedented brutality of these attacks, US officials tell CNN the Hamas threat may now be reassessed. Well, Jake, a big question tonight is how. How could Hamas, a Palestinian militant group, manage to have gained so much accurate information uh, inside Israel? The survivors we've spoken to say they just don't understand how Hamas, how Hamas could have got that kind of intel without help from the inside. Back to you.
All right, CNN's Matthew Chance in northern Israel. Thank you so much. Coming up, we just heard President Biden plans to deliver a primetime address tomorrow evening. How will his trip to Israel define his legacy? We're going to talk to an intelligence expert about that next. And we're back. Israel's military knows it is preparing for what will be a long, hard slog. Listen to a top Israeli Defense Forces official speaking to Israeli soldiers earlier today. This will not be short. And even if we'll have to expand the campaign in case another enemy gets involved, we'll know how to handle it. Joining us now, CNN National Security Analyst and former Deputy Director of National Intelligence, uh, Beth Sanner. Uh, let, let's start with what he just said. And if, if somebody else gets involved, he's talking about Hezbollah, I imagine. Right, right, absolutely. And they today they just moved up some troops and some uh, regular troops and some reservists up to the border, kind of bracing for what will happen. I mean, you know, as of last night, with the ramifications of this hospital strike, you know, with all of the demonstrations, there's quite a bit of pressure now on Hezbollah to do something, right? I mean, all the Arab leaders are feeling this pressure, even though I sense that they don't want to escalate necessarily, uh, they may feel that they have to. And so, you know, the next few days, of course, Friday prayers is always the day that we look at, right? right? What happens after Friday prayers? Are they going to react? But so far, it seems that it's measured and proportional. um, And Hopefully, you know, and Israelis are trying to keep it that way as well. Well, you said even though, and you didn't say even though it looks like, based on the best U.S. intelligence, the Israelis didn't do what happened in the hospital. I mean, there's no definitive assertion by U.S. intelligence, but based on what is public and based on what is being asserted privately by the Israelis and the Americans, it looks like it was a Palestinian misfired rocket. But that doesn't seem to matter. To no, the Arab no. world. I, I think the latest NSC statement does make it a little bit more clear. It just came out in the last yeah. half hour or so that it wasn't. And there is, you know, probably U.S. intelligence in addition to the Israeli intelligence that would back that up. Um, without but you don't see the Palestinians it makes no and the Jordanians difference. and the Egyptians no, or Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. None of them say, oh, uh, our bad. Uh, no. Um, perception is reality. And, you know, we're in a position here where, you know, you are fighting against decades of an understanding of the situation that is completely different than our own, that, you know, is about Israeli culpability. And so every every Arab leader and every Palestinian supporter and every Arab street is going to bucket everything the same way. And, you know, disinformation um, misinformation feeds on perceptions. That's the most effective kind, right? When you're building up and building on preconceived notions. And so that's what's happening. Jonathan Swift said, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after it. <laughs> uh, right At before uh, President Biden took off, uh, Jordan and the Palestinian Authority canceled their trip. The summit uh, that was supposed to happen with him, Egypt, was supposed to be in there also. Um, those countries will never acknowledge it, but does it also just give them an out so that they don't have to play any sort of role? You know, the skepticism that you and I have both expressed about how much Abbas, CC, King Abdullah, any of them want to play right. in helping the Palestinians have a thriving democracy on the banks of the Mediterranean when Hamas is gone, if Hamas is ever gone. Yes. Um, you know, the statement coming out of the Organization of Islamic uh, Council today, which is 57 Islamic countries ranging from Indonesia to Syria, 
and Iran, and hosted, of course, by the where it's located in Saudi Arabia, came out incredibly um, accusational about the United States, blamed Israel for the attack. Um, Which attack? On the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and said that, uh, basically said that, you know, without saying the word United States, that we were giving Israel impunity. But at the same time, you know that underneath this, that all of these countries actually rely on the United States, on the United States presence. We are still the only country in the region that can provide security to this region. And they're all terrified of Iran. So, you know, I think they have to say something because that's what the Arab street. But they're also, they don't want us to go away. Mm-hmm. Okay. Beth Sander, good to see you as always. Did you hear my, my grumble? Yes. You might remember that horrifying video of that young woman on a motorcycle pleading for help as she was being kidnapped by the terrorists of Hamas. I'm going to talk to her family next. Noah Argamani was simply attending a music festival in Israel on October 7th. And then, of course, Hamas unleashed its terrorist attack and turned the festival into a massacre. And shortly thereafter, the world saw Noah in this disturbing video. Her arms outstretched. She was pleading for help as she is kidnapped by the terrorists of Hamas. Her boyfriend was also kidnapped. Joining us now is Noah's father, Yaakov Argamani, and Shlomit uh, Marciano, Noah's best friend. Um, Last week, Noah would have celebrated her 26th birthday with friends and family. Instead, her family had dinner and birthday cake with two empty chairs at the table, one for Noah and one for her boyfriend. Um, Both of them are still missing after Hamas attacked. Um, Shlomit, how how are you Um, and, and how is Yaakov and the rest of the family doing? Um, it's very difficult. I think both of us and the rest of the family still can believe that uh, this is our reality. Um, yeah, every, each day is getting harder and harder. But we're trying to stay strong and do everything we can uh, to bring her back. Ask Yaakov, if you, if you can, um, how, he's, how he's holding in there. He also says it's very difficult and each day he realize um, it's happening. So, he still can't believe this is the situation. And it's very hard. Has the military or the Israeli government provided any information on her condition to, to, to you, Shlomit, or, or to the family? Can you, can you ask Yaakov? Actually, no, nothing. Nothing. Since that video, we still don't know uh, how is she. Wow. What do you want people to know about Noah, Shlomit? Um, 
I want people to know that Noah is a very ambitious girl. She's very caring. Um, her mother suffers from cancer and Noah really took care of her and the rest of the family. She's an only child. Um, but she also loved life. Like, I hope every young person, uh, she liked to party, to travel. She'd been to so many states. Um, and also she was, she is very intelligent. Uh, she was very excited to go to her next semester. And yeah, she, she got into so many people's hearts. And she has so many friends that are caring about her so much right now. Yeah. And this situation is unbearable for so many people. Because you, we love Noah. Could you ask Yaakov what goes through his mind when he sees that, that horrible video of, of her being taken? <laughs> I don't believe he couldn't believe this is happening. His only child, the child that he took care of, uh, try tried to protect with everything he has, and he just saw her taking away from him to Gaza, and he, he can't. Um, this is true. <laughs> היא הייתה, אנחנו אנשים מבוגרים, אני אוטוטוס, 69, אישה מבוגרת ואישה חולה, ונועה היא הייתה החיות של הבית, היא הייתה זו, זו שהפעילה את הבית. Her mother is suffering from cancer. And Noah's present really gave life uh, to the house. Um, and now it's absent. Because last question, if, if, um, if Yavkov could deliver a message to the people who took, who took his beloved Noah from him, what, what would he say to them? What would he want them to understand? אם עכשיו תוכל למסור למי שחטף את נועה הודעה, מה היית אומר בבקשה, בכל לשון של בקשה. אנחנו שני עמים לאבא אחד. אברהם אבינו הוא אבא שלנו ואבא שלכם. בואו בבקשה, בכל לשון בבקשה. בואו נשב, בואו נדבר. בואו נעשה, ויש, ויש אלף ואחת סיכוי לעשות פעם אחת את עמית שלום. בשבעים ושלוש הייתה מלחמה מאוד קשה. בשבעים ושבע היה שלום כבר. זה אפשרי. אנחנו שתי עמים לעם אחד. בואו בבקשה, 
בו בכל לשון של בקשה. מה יעזור לנו ההרג הזה? מה יעזור עוד כמה ימי לחימה? לא לנו ולא לכם, יהיו רק יותר הרוגים. בואו נעצור את זה, די להרג, די להרג. בואו נעשה פעם אחת לתמיד שלום. גם שם יש אבות שכואבים את מות בנם, גם שם יש אימהות שחרדות לשלום ביניהן. כמונו, בואו בבקשה, בואו נפסיק את ההרג, בואו נעצור את ההרג עכשיו, כדי שמחר לא יהיו יותר הרוגים, או יותר מאוחר יהיו עוד יותר הרוגים. בואו נעצור עכשיו, נשב פעם אחת לתמיד, זה אפשרי, זה אפשרי. Basically, he's uh, begging um, to their hearts. He still believes that they have a heart. And he's, he's begging for peace. He, he said there was enough killing, enough murdering. And he, he truly believes that if we'll talk, then... Um, the peace. Mm -hmm. then Yaakov Argamani and Shlomi to Marciano, thanks to both of you. I hope, I hope Noah comes, comes back soon. Thank you. Toda Raba. Tough story. We'll be right back. Thanks for watching the lead. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.